Al, you want this? Good morning. That was very responsive. Brilliant. You're clearly, clearly on it this morning. Um, great. If, as and when the slides arrive, that's fine. There's no rush. We've been hearing um, about the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Now, uh, we had a slight diversion last week, although actually it fitted really well in with what God's been um, talking to us about. But those of you who were here two weeks ago will have heard Andy O'Connell kind of setting out the Beatitudes as Jesus's manifesto and the Sermon on the Mount centered on the Lord's Prayer and in particular on earth as it is in heaven. I was really challenged by that talk. If you haven't heard it, it's on the website every week. Lou sits down there on a Monday and puts the sermons up on the website. It is for a purpose. Do make use of it if you miss the talks. It was a really, really helpful intro to this series on prayer-fueled living. Looking at the Beatitudes, I think you could get excited about all of them. But I think the one that I'm going to be talking from today is the one that certainly to me feels the most challenging. And it's this one. It's Would you mind advancing the slide? Sorry. This one, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I'll probably just wave every time I want a slide moved on, if that's all right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I don't know what you think about when you think purity of heart, but immediately I feel challenged just reading that. But I want to actually start by looking at two people for whom this was lived out in a really concrete way, which would be Simeon and Anna. I don't know if you think about them when you think about seeing God, but Jesus is presented at the temple as a baby. And at the whole temple, only two people that we read of recognize him. One of them is Simeon. The other one's Anna. We know very little about them. All we really know about them is a description of their lifestyle. Simeon is a devout, righteous man waiting for the consolation of Israel. And he has this prayer that we read when he sees Jesus and recognizes him. Because God's promised him that he won't die before he's seen the consolation of Israel. And he takes Jesus into his arms. And then he says, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace as you've spoken. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, which you've prepared in the sight of all people. This is all he's living for. Can you imagine being so satisfied with one thing that you'd say, do you know what, I'm happy to die now. Nothing else matters this much. I'm happy to die now. I've seen the consolation of Israel. And then we have Anna, and she's a prophetess. She's living at the temple, more or less. She, it says she never left it. I don't know if that's a little bit of, of um, sort of figure of speech, and you know, she went home to eat, or if there's a miraculous sustenance going on here. But she, she stays at the temple fasting and praying. And she had nothing else but God, more or less. We read that she was married for seven years, and then she was a widow until she was 84. And she stays constantly at the temple. And she sees Jesus and recognizes him for who he is as well. These are two people who see God in a very real, concrete way. And I want us to keep them in mind as we move on to Jesus' teaching about purity of heart. And why will perhaps become apparent as we go on. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches extensively about purity of heart, actually. Um, Through the lens of different moral instructions. So I'm told that this will now work. Let's try. Brilliant. Thank you. He talks about it through lots of different moral instructions. We're going to look at just three of them in a minute. But we don't just want to look at the purity of heart aspect. We want to honor Jesus' words at the original, you know, sort of face value as well. So we're going to look at Jesus' commands about moral living. 
We're going to see what they say about purity of heart. And then we're also going to look at how this affects our prayer life. How can we live prayerful lives as a result? And as part of that, in a few minutes as well, Jo is going to come up and share some stuff with us that she brought at a student meeting a few weeks back, which I think speaks right into this as well. So, it's going to be all the cheerful ones this morning. We're going to look at Matthew 5, adultery, divorce, and honest speech. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, that would be fantastic. And just before we dig into the actual teaching, I'm just going to draw out a phrase that occurs right at the very beginning of each of those passages. You have heard that it was said, dot, 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 but I say to you. Now, I found this problematic in the past. I don't know if you have as well. What, what's our framework for this? Is Jesus abolishing what has previously been taught to the people? Is this him saying, no, look, that, that law, that doesn't apply anymore. We've got something new coming. Well, it can't be that, because only a few verses before Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. If that was a human, I don't know, a politician or something, we might think those were weasel words, but it's Jesus. So we've got to take that seriously. He's, he's not come to abolish it. He's come to fulfill it. Is it about him sort of just raising the bar and saying, look, that was good enough in the past, but actually, do you know what? It's not anymore. Now I'm setting the bar up here. Or is there something else going on? I want to suggest there's something slightly different going on. And to make it clearer, it's really important to understand this turn of phrase. He's not saying it is written, but he's saying you have heard that it was said. Just the chapter before, when he's being tempted in the wilderness, Jesus does respond, it is written. He's speaking authoritatively about scripture. The devil tempts him and says, turn these stones into bread. And he says, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jump off the temple roof. It is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. There's this word, gegraptai. It's the same word we get graph, graphites, graphics from. It means it is written. But actually here he's saying, you have heard that it was said. And what he's referring to is an oral rabbinic tradition in which people are being taught by rote. And the trouble is that when you teach orally, sometimes you teach scripture absolutely accurately. We'll see there are some times when scripture is quoted really accurately in that. Sometimes you're given an angle on scripture. Sometimes maybe an opinion. And occasionally, if not careful, a corruption of scripture. And we're actually going to see that in one of the later passages as well. So part of the difficulty, part of the reason he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, is that sometimes what has been said has deviated from the original scripture. An example might be, if you, you know, I might say to you, you've heard it said, money is the root of all evil. Now, what's the actual scripture? Exactly, the love of money is the root of all evil. Very different when you take it down to... And it's all kinds of evil as well, actually, which thank you, Dan, over there, right on the ball. Um, so, in fact, that, yeah, that in itself was a, is a significant difference, isn't it? So it's very easy to slip from Scripture into teaching that is slightly off the mark. But the other reason that the rabbinical tradition is problematic and, and the sayings are problematic is sometimes they present the commandments as being exhaustive. Now, for instance, I'm sure no parents will recognize this scenario anywhere, but imagine that you say to one of your children, um, now, when you're downstairs, don't thump your sister. And you come down a couple of minutes later, sister is in tears. I didn't thump her. What did you do? I kicked her. The fact is the commandments are not exhaustive. Underneath that, there is a heart command of 
don't be unkind, be kind to your sister. But because it's been expressed through a commandment, that commandment still stands. It's absolutely wrong to thump your sister, but it's also wrong to kick them. And sometimes that's what's going on. And that's where we have, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. I want to say this is not Jesus saying that standard was good enough in the past, but now it's up here. It's not like that stuff was ever okay. (laughs) But he's saying, look, that law, that outworking of God's morals, you've heard that said, but don't forget the actual underlying moral itself. Jesus sets the bar back where it has always been, but where it has slipped in teaching. So with that in mind, let's go on to Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is one situation where the commandment is quoted accurately, and Jesus upholds it, doesn't he? So he's not saying that's wrong, but he is saying there's an underlying heart in this as well. Katie Hilda told us last week, wave a hand if you were here last week when Katie spoke, she told us that we are are three-part beings. We have a body, a soul, and a spirit, and we can't separate them out and just treat one and not treat the other or focus on one and not focus on the other. And I want to suggest there's an underlying heart principle here which says that you can't allow your brain to go places that your body cannot. If we set a rule on ourselves and we say, I'm not going to sleep with somebody who's not my, my spouse, it's not okay to go there in our brains. And Jesus is saying it's not just this one outworking in the commandment. There's an underlying thing. You've heard it said that, but I say to you, not even in your brains. It's not okay. Um, I want to stop here for a second. What is looking lustfully at a woman? I think there's a lot in common here with coveting, actually, wanting something that's not yours to have. Um, But there is a difficulty if we're trying to be honest with ourselves about the state of our hearts and our eyes. And it's not a simple thing when you're watching films when all kinds of stuff might be presented, sometimes expectedly, sometimes unexpectedly. Uh, What is really going on in our hearts And particularly, as Jeremiah puts it, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Can we trust our own evaluation of what's going on in our minds? Can we honestly say, do you know what? That was absolutely fine. I watched that. That was not an issue, but that is. I want to suggest to you that a good rule of thumb would be, how would you feel having a conversation with Jesus about it? And if that feels a little bit abstract and you can't envisage that, how about your mum? But seriously, this is what we've got to be going through in our heads. You know, are we allowing our brain to go places that we would not only frown on ourselves, but frown on other people for doing physically? Jesus says that's not okay. This is an incredibly high standard, and it's particularly high given what Jesus goes on to say. He says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he says the same for the right hand. These are symbols of the the things that are most precious and most important to you, your right eye, your right hand. He's saying, look, whatever causes you to sin, however dearly held, however important it is to you, it's got to go if it's causing you to sin. So Jesus takes this really seriously. This sets a standard that is incredibly challenging. And if nothing else, it leaves us calling out to God for his mercy because we all fall short in one way or another. It's not just limited, of course, to infidelity, is it? It's also uh, those conversations you play out in your head when somebody has said something that's wronged you and you, you, you don't say it back to them. You don't give them lip back. But in your head, you think, oh, I could say that and that would really show them up. 
what are they call revenge fantasies or something. I, I want to suggest that any fantasy in which we allow our brains to go places that our bodies or our lips wouldn't is falling foul of this same law that Jesus is laying out. Okay, that's adultery in brief. Divorce. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Would you mind skipping on? Sorry. Thanks. Okay. Now, Jesus here is actually speaking into a debate that was current at the time. There were two rabbis, Hillel and Shammai, who had very different views on what it was okay to divorce a woman for. Um, there's actually a fuller treatment in this in, in Matthew 19. If you want to read it at some stage, do. Um, it's the one where the Pharisees say, is it okay for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And you see there that Jesus challenges that question. But it's worth saying that in addition to this debate that's going on, the commandment isn't being quoted correctly. Jesus says, you've heard it was said, but actually, there is no command when you divorce your wife, give her a certificate of divorce, as though that was something God was instituting. Actually, what you have is Moses saying, if a man divorces his wife and gives her a certificate of divorce, and she leaves him and she marries somebody else, and he divorces her and gives her a certificate of divorce, she can't then marry the original husband again. Now, there's all kinds of interpretations as to why that's particularly important. Uh, God says, you know, that would defile the land. There's, there's something that seems really wrong about that. And I don't want to go into that today other than to say that God has never said it's good to divorce your wife and give her a certificate. That's not the command. So here, this is a case of the oral tradition stepping away from Scripture, and Jesus challenges it. But in addition... He challenges the attitude. You see, the question is all about, when's it okay? When's it okay to get divorced? And Jesus says, it's not about how permissive can we be. It's about the sanctity of marriage. You get this more fully in Matthew 19. He doesn't say, look, here's the rules, at least not initially. He says, haven't you read in the beginning, God created them male and female, and then he joined them together. And there's a heart here of not what can we get away with, but live wholeheartedly for God. This is the underlying heart. So the, the principle is, as Jesus says here, don't get divorced except for infidelity. But the heart principle is don't see what you can get away with. A couple of years ago, you might remember I spoke about that yellow line you get along the platform at a station and how kids' response is like, how close can I get to it? Because it's got a thing saying, you know, do not step across this line. And you know why? Because the trains come, fast, come past really fast. And the child's response is, how close can I get to the line? And if that line represents us sinning, why do we even want to get close to it? Why do we want to see how close our toes can get? We want to be right over here saying, why would I do that? There's God over there. This is our heart attitude. Don't see what we can get away with, but live wholeheartedly for God. Having said that, people have asked us in the last 12 months, or asked me in the last 12 months, what our practices are here at OCC. And this is not an academic question. The stats show that almost all of us will have close family or friends who have um, been involved in divorce. And I know that for some people, this is even more personal. This is not an academic question. Um, and I also don't want to be uncompassionate 
in teaching what scripture says, but our practice as a community is that we follow what the scripture says. Our focus, first and foremost, is on cooperating with God in reconciliation. God is a God who is reconciled to people and who promotes reconciliation. And we have the whole book of Hosea about Hosea modeling God's faithfulness in going after an unfaithful wife and bringing her back and being reconciled. So first of all, our focus is on cooperation with God in seeking reconciliation. But where divorce does happen, we believe, as Scripture says, that divorce and remarriage is allowed in two cases from Scripture. Firstly, as Jesus says here, where there's been infidelity. And secondly, Paul mentions a scenario in which, because of faith, um, an unbelieving spouse deserts a believing spouse. He says in that case, they are free to leave. And those would be the situations in which we see Scripture saying that that is permissible. It is worth saying that life is complex and that legal definitions don't always match biblical ones. And so we always have an individual conversation. But the individual conversations are because life is complex, not because scripture is unclear. Um, I hope that that is sufficiently simple, but I, I would be very happy to have a conversation at greater length if that would be useful with anybody. The underlying heart principle. Let's not see what we can get away with, but let's live wholeheartedly for God. Okay, honest speech. Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you've made. But I tell you, don't swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And don't swear by your head, because you can't make one hair even white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I don't want to add too much more here. There's much more about the oaths and the way that they were being abused in current culture in Matthew 23 and Mark 7. Um, and you can go into the whole way in which oaths were being used to circumvent other commands like honoring your parents. This is not a direct quote from scripture, by the way. Um, Do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the oaths you've made. But it is an accurate summary of a number of scriptures. So there's not a corruption there. Um, And there is a clear teaching here that we should be honest in our speech. It shouldn't just be when we swear to it, but it should be all the time. We should be seeking to be honest. But there's something else here as well that I want to pull out. Again, another heart attitude question, and it's this. We can't even make one hair on our head white or black. If we swear by something, it's as though we're anchoring the surety of our ability to do it to something even greater. If I swear that I will do something by the Lord then I'm saying that my actions are as sure as the Lord, and they can't be because I'm not in control of my life. None of us is. Any illusion that we're in control really comes down to, to a heart of pride. So I want to say there's a heart principle here. Do not speak as though you're in charge, as though you're in control, because we're not. It's an illusion and one that we need to burst. Jesus has given us some idea here of what purity of heart looks like. Even now, this is not an exhaustive list, but it's some heart principles underlying commands that he also upholds. And it's really important to say he does uphold the commands of Scripture. This is not about doing away with those. I've sort of had it up to here, I think, with conversations where people say, oh, you know, well, Jesus just loved people. And unless you expand your view of what love means, certainly by what we call love at the moment, Jesus didn't just love people. He also strongly challenged people 
and saw people's lives changed. So Jesus upheld the commands as well as looking at the heart. But I want to look back now to Anna and Simeon because I said to keep them in mind all the way through. And there's something else going on here, which is that purity of heart is about being undivided in heart. If something's pure, it's not been cut with anything else. It's not been uh, contaminated with anything else. And there's something about Anna and Simeon's lives which are pure because they're just seeking after God. And like I say, Simeon's at this stage where once he's seen what God's promised him, that's all he wants from life. And Anna is in this place where she's stripped away or things have been stripped from her sometimes, everything that could possibly lead her to want anything other than the presence of God. With that in mind, um, Joe, would you bring what you had to share, please? That would be great. Okay, great. So as Al said, I'm Joe. I'm a student here, a second-year earth scientist at Teddy Hall. And uh, when I'm not at church, I often you'll find me on the rugby pitch. So Al said earlier that I'm bringing something that came up in a student night. We were talking about how God speaks to us, and I was saying that quite often it comes to me in words for music and in songs. And one particular song, it's not actually a Christian song, but I think it sums up the kind of undivided devotion that we think purity of heart can look like. And it's called All of Me by John Legend. It's actually written for his wife, but I, there's an extract from the chorus that I really think sums up what undivided devotion is. I'm going to read it to you now. You'll be pleased I'm not going to sing it to you. Um, so it's, give your all to me. I'll give my all to you. You're my end and my beginning. Even when I lose, I'm winning. Because I give you all of me, and you give me all of you. I think this just sums up undivided devotion really beautifully. All of me. Not the bits that you show everyone else, the deepest bits of your soul that you don't show the world. You're my end and my beginning. Wouldn't it be so good if we were fully saying that about God? That he was our first thought every day and our last thought every night? Just be great. So, but what does it mean to have God fully and give him your undivided devotion? I think it involves taking all of him, give your all to me, and giving you all of him. I give my all to you. So first of all, taking all of God. Um, This means taking God on his terms, not yours. Every bit of God, not just the bits that you're uncomfortable with. I know we're, we're probably all super happy with the side of God that's loving and he forgives our sins and we learned last week that he wants to heal us and all of this, but what about the side of God that doesn't always heal us when we want it? And the side of God that Jesus picks up on later on in Matthew when he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the ones who can destroy both the soul of the one who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Talking about God, do we fully accept that? Do we talk about the fact that God is the one that sends people to hell? But he has to do this because that's how he's just. We have to take all of him. But the best bit about taking all of God is actually that he wants to give us all of him. We don't have to earn that at all. He's right there and all we have to do is ask for it. But of course, this is a two-way 
relationship. We can't just take all of God. We should give him all of us. It seems only fair. It says in Matthew, again, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. But it's not an easy commandment to do this fully. There's a lot to me. There's an awful lot to me. But God wants it all, every single bit, no matter what we've done or felt before. So are there any practical steps that we can take to um, giving him all of us? There's loads of ways we can do this, but one way that we're going to look at now, me and Al, are going to look at fasting. Um, Fasting comes up uh, in the next chapter of Matthew in the Sermon of the Mount when he says, when you fast, do not look look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure, disfigure their faces to show others that they are fasting. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This again picks up on the commandment before that we should be fasting, but doesn't raise it to a new level, reminds us of the new level that we should be doing it in secret, or not in secret, but not showing off to the world that we're doing it. So for the listeners Jesus was talking to, it's not really a question of whether they fast, only how they fast, because it was a common thing to do in Jewish culture at the time. And I think one of the reasons it was so common and that Jesus instructs us to do it is that it's a really practical way to work towards pureness of heart, to be truly devoted to him. Because food is essential to life. You can't live without it. But if you temporarily give it up, You're saying to God, have this bit of me. You are more essential to me than this meal. Now, this isn't something that's been easy for me. It's not something I've been doing for long either. In fact, I sat down two weeks ago with Al to talk about the sermon, and he asked me if I'd ever fasted, and I was like, no, not really, not for me. I said earlier I play rugby, play it all the time. Got to have two, three quite often four meals a day just to get through. Um, I've got a picture here. I don't know if anyone relates to this. I definitely do. So I was like, can't do that. And then the evening after I spoke to Al about fasting, Steve spoke to some of the students about fasting, at which point I got the message from God that it was my time to try it. So that's what I did. And so I'm going to share with you how that was for me. And I know we've read just before, that we don't want to make it obvious to the world. So I'm not up here to get a pat on the back from you all for finally trying fasting. I'm up here to tell you what I think I learned from it, because I think it will hopefully encourage some of you, but also God put some things on my heart that I think would be good for us all to hear. So, what did I learn about fasting? First of all, fasting's really, really difficult. (laughs) it's not easy and um, that's the point I I, I remember cycling up Ifley Road in the snow really really hungry going God can you just make me less hungry that would be great but that's not what you're learning to do in fasting you're learning to lean into God instead of into the biscuit tin when things get hard (laughs) you want to ask God to provide for you and get you to the top of Ifley Road not 
you don't want it from the biscuit tin, as I said. And that's, that's why he doesn't make it easy, because then you're not fully leaning into him. The next thing God said to me, this wasn't about the fasting, but something he revealed to me during the fasting, was that undivided devotion means giving all of you. And this is the really small bits that you don't think God's interested in. For me specifically, this was the state of my bedroom. Anyone who's been to my house will know that my bedroom is a mess. My parents said they'd listen to this later, and they will be pleased that this is what God has been talking to me about, definitely. Um, And God was really clear that that's not glorifying him. He's not having all of me when my bedroom, no one can go into it. Can't sit at my desk. How is that glorifying God? The fact that that's a mess. And that could really speak to you. It could be the state of your bedroom, or it could be another small thing that you think God wasn't interested in him, but actually he's niggling at you, and actually he does want that bit. He wants all of you, including that. And if that is you, I'd love to pray with you later, definitely. And it's not a quick process. I'm not a tidy person, so keeping my bedroom tidy is tricky and taking a lot of time, but we'll see. And I'd love to pray with you about it. We can step through this together. Um, And my final point, I think, is fasting is something that's great, but food is complicated. And sometimes food isn't the right thing to give up. And that's okay. If fasting food just isn't appropriate, there are reasons for that, and that's fine. And because it's not about getting good Christian points here. We're not ticking boxes to get into heaven, because if we were, none of us would get there. And that's great. But it is about trying to give our lives fully to Jesus, give us all of him, all our mind, all our strength, all our soul. So is there something else you could fast if food isn't an option right now? There are other things that seem essential to you that you don't think you can live without. You know, could it be your cup of tea every morning? Is it the makeup you put on before you leave the house each day? Anything like that. Have a think and have a pray about what God is calling you to fast. Um, And fasting is only one way of trying to get undivided devotion in your life. Um, And there are loads of ways, but fasting is a really good one at giving God all of you. So that's all I've got to say. Al is going to say a little bit more about fasting now um, and tell us how we can respond. I was super encouraged to hear Jo's testimony um, about how she had found this and about what it had started to kick off in her life. Um, I hope you were as well. Sorry, I managed to lose my place in my notes, but we'll get there. I do just want to quickly pick up on what Joe said there about fasting other things. I think and there, there is something essential about food, and if the reason that you don't want to fast from food is because you don't like giving up food, then that's not a good reason not to make it food. Um, genuinely speaking, though, if um, your past or present situation involves an eating disorder, or if you're pregnant, or if your doctor has told you that really you should not do this, those would be good reasons to find something else. Um, I also want to point out that in Scripture, there's at least an expectation that some married couples would give up sex as part of fasting in, for the sake of prayer. That's 1 Corinthians 7. Um, that may be something for married couples that you want to think about as well, although it does also say only for a time. Um, why are we mentioning fasting? It may have felt like a bit of an, an elbow turn from undivided devotion into fasting, but Here's the thing. We can't make our hearts pure. We, we love to think that we can, but we can't. 
we sing to God, purify my heart. Not let me purify my heart. Purify my heart. And there's a now and not yet thing because God has already made us pure. There's this wonderful promise in Ezekiel 36 that you might remember where God, looking forward to this new covenant people, says, I will put a new heart in them and a new spirit in them. Elsewhere, he talks about giving us a heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. In some ways, God has already done this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, exactly. But the fact is that our minds and our bodies haven't yet aligned themselves fully with that reality, have they? Paul wrestles with this and ends up saying in exasperation, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Christ Jesus. And that actually leads us into that passage from Romans 8 that we heard earlier. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So God is always at work in us, changing us, bringing us into line with that new reality that we have been made new. And fasting is a really good way to discover where some of those divisions come between how God has made things to be, and the actual lived-out reality. Like you say, you realize, do you really rely on the biscuit tin, or do you rely on the Lord? I thought that was a fantastic way of putting it. I want to give you another lens on it as well. Imagine having a conversation with your boss. They've got something really important to tell you, but you're also simultaneously getting on with all the work that you've got to do. And it's really important work. In fact, it's work that your boss wants you to do. But you're sitting there, you know, with the computer screen and maybe the phone and there's stuff on your desk and there's paperwork in front of you. And there's your boss trying to have a conversation with you and explain something really important. Now, sometimes you might have those kind of working conversations, but there's also a place for switching off the screen, clearing the papers off the desk, turning anything on the desk face down, putting the phone away and looking them straight in the eyes and giving them undivided attention. And there's something about fasting which is like that. It's putting aside all the stuff, even the good stuff, putting it to one side. God gave us food for our enjoyment and for our sustenance, but let's put it aside for a minute. And let's focus wholeheartedly on God. So if it helps you to think about it in a way that isn't about what we do, fasting is one way of wholeheartedly cooperating with God's shaping of our hearts. So the first thing I want to ask you is, when are you going to fast in the next two weeks? Get your diaries out, why not? Um, If there's a good reason not to, as I said, maybe think about something else you can can fast from. But why not not get your diaries out as soon as we finish this and and say, do you know what, I could do that. That would be something that would shape, shape me as I cooperate with God. What else could you, if it's not food, what else could you do that's worth thinking about it? What would represent a sort of a stripping away of something good that's not just a minor distraction, but something good that we want? We cannot make our hearts pure, but we can ask God to do it, and we can cooperate with him as he does it. And that's my encouragement to us today.